Welcome to this podcast series asking the question, can art save us? I'm starting the first national and international conversation about courage and curiosity. What do these qualities really mean and why does it make a big difference to our mental, societal and democratic health? I talk to award-winning and diverse artists across the arts to explore these qualities in their lives and work, both to inspire and for us all to learn. I'm exploring why we need these qualities to help change the global epidemic of mental illness, loneliness, polarisation of our communities and even global conflict. If the arts cultivate courage and curiosity, I'm asking the question, can art save us? And my guest today is Princess Arinola Adebiti, also known as P.A. Bites. Princess Arinola is a British Jamaican-born Nigerian poet. She's a spoken word artist, a songwriter and filmmaker whose artistic expression is described as social activism and spiritual healing. But crucially, she's a voice battling for authenticity. Based in Manchester, which she describes as a honeycomb metropolis, she is already the recipient of various awards as a young writer. In 2015, she appeared in the Young Writers Anthologies. At 16, she published her debut poetry collection, Soft Tortures. At 17, she won Slambassadors, a national poetry competition. And by 2020, she was one of six finalists of the BBC Words First talent scheme, searching for the best spoken word poets in the UK. In 2021, she was awarded Manchester Creative of the Year at the Manchester Culture Awards. And throughout this, she has also won a number of successful commissions. Currently, Princess Arinola is a member of Young Identity, Manchester's premier spoken word collective. And in 2023, we can look forward to her EP, Vintage Destiny, taking us on a surrealist Afro-futuristic journey. And all of this is only the beginning. Hello, Princess Arinola, and welcome. Hello. Hi, Paula. How are you? (laughs) I'm good. I'm very excited to have you on board on the podcast. Thank you for joining me, and especially over this Christmas period. Nah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited too. (laughs) Well, listen, firstly, I've never interviewed a princess before, so I thought maybe we could begin... With your names, I'm curious whether there are stories or heritage stories behind your name. So perhaps you can tell us more. Oh, well, there is like, it's crazy because when I tell people this, they think it's a joke. So I never, so a lot of people know me as Ari because I don't usually, I only started using my first name properly in university because in high school, when I introduced myself with my first name, people didn't believe me. (laughs) <laughs> and there'd be jokes like, oh, if you're a princess, why are you not in a castle? Like the cliche stuff. So the actual history behind my name is um, my dad is Nigerian and he comes from um, an area called Kwara State. And in that area um, of Nigeria, he actually was a prince um, in Kwara State. And his brother is a Muslim. Uh, on my dad's side of the family, they're all Muslims. And he, to ascend to the throne, he had to be a Muslim, but he actually decided to become a Christian. He met my mom, fell in love, and she was a Christian. Um, and he wanted to convert because he felt more attached to that religion. So he converted. Um, and because he couldn't, because he couldn't be Muslim anymore, they decided that he couldn't ascend to the throne. So his younger brother did. 
Um, and my dad ended up moving to the UK and having a life here with my mum for a while. Um, so that's the history of my name. So it's more so a title than a name, but it's also my first name and all, all my passports and driving license and all that. <laughs> wow, what a story. I mean, that's I'm sure that's a, a Hollywood film in the making, isn't it? That's <laughs> an epic romance. Yeah, it is. It's like it's it's like the opposite of like <laughs> Prince Harry and Meghan, kind of like <laughs> the throne, they went away from the throne. But it's, it's, it's cool. Like, um, I like how like my family from the very beginning have chosen authenticity and what feels right rather than titles or like um, prestige. Um, and that's why I never felt like needed to like introduce myself as princess. And also because of people conflating like what my name meant. Um, but now I'm like proud to be called my name. Um, and I use my initials P by it as well because my last name, people can't um, pronounce it often. So I just try to make it easy for them and use like a more British way of saying it for the bites. But also it's kind of like biting back at the patriarchy, biting back at people who have tried to oppress me and marginalise me and being able to like reclaim my identity. So I really have a special relationship with my name because princess obviously means royalty and crowns. Areola means in the middle of riches and a debutant means acquiring the crown. So my whole name is all about like royalty and knowing your strength and like being different. And I appreciate that. I even have a crown on my hand tattooed. So that's how much it is a theme, a motif in my life. Now, that's fascinating. Um, that, that, that really is amazing um, that there's so much meaning, um, you know, attached to every part uh, of your names. And of course, meaning um, is everything you're about. And when I was looking at your pathway, if you like, into poetry, I saw that it was as young as age nine that perhaps poetry became a distinct part of your life. And I understand that that was also in response to traumatic events. So depending on how much you want to talk about that, that you're comfortable with, I wondered if you could maybe share some context um, for the listeners and to help explain how you maybe remember turning to poetry at that young age and, and what that felt like at that time. Well, I was a deeply philosophical child. Um, and even before my father passed away, when I was nine, I was deeply philosophical. I remember actually, like, one of my first memories was writing a letter to my mum at, like, age seven, asking her, like, why do we exist and how we got here? And, like, is sadness natural? Like, is it normal to feel this sad? Because I was quite a melancholic child. Um, and I had... Um, I have sickle cell and I found out about it later but I always had like aches and pains or occasional like feeling unwell but when you're young well my experience was when I was young I didn't get that sick so it was only really after my dad passed away I started to get occasionally more sick with my sickle cell disease which is a blood condition um, and I feel like there's an interesting metaphor there with like the blood and how after my dad passed away that's when my um, chronic illness got more prominent in my life more relevant um and obviously stress can exacerbate health issues so when I was nine my dad passed away and that made me even more philosophical and even more like interested in mortality and like I was reading about like vanitas and skulls and like the art 
of like death and how death is so prevalent and we have to remind ourselves of like the immediacy of death and make our relationships relevant and and loving and full of gentleness because everyone's end is the same inevitable finale so having all that in my head buzzing about death and like having a health condition meaning it's looming and it would loom anyway regardless as a human it made me like question things more and be really interested in writing about topics to do with death even regardless a lot of my poems it is actually the subtext death and mortality whether I'm writing about um black rights and black liberation or feminism or whether I'm writing about small moments of like looking at a beautiful flower and seeing it die and that reminding me of like the ephemeral nature of existence it all kind of plays into my work so after he passed away which was I was deeply close to my father and one of the most hurtful things about death is the things you can't remember about the person because that's like a different type of death that's like the the cumulative death so I deeply remember his smile and his eyes but I've forgotten his voice and um I have and and it's also why I have such an interest in like um ambivalent relationship with technology because I love that technology lets us like save things but it's in this really artificial state so I'm always curious about like what would it have been like if we had more videos of my father talking or laughing and if I could have like bookmarked that in my brain. Um, but no, like that's, we ha- we don't. So I, I, I've forgotten a lot of things about him. So I guess in my writing, I'm trying to like retrace who I was when I was a child, when I had, when I was my most authentic self. And also I had memories of things that were important to me. So I guess with all my art, whether it's music or poetry, it's always me trying to like, get back to my childlike self before I became slightly, not very, but only like slightly cynical. (laughs) I'm still very um, hopeful, but slightly cynical. So I started writing at nine to deal with that. Yeah. So yeah, with such a huge impact um, of loss at such a young age, it's interesting that in many ways, I expect you could say, it's also a manifestation of your appreciation of life as a result. And therefore, the importance of things like justice and fairness and, and if, if you like, your awareness of, of all of those unjust deprivations that can play out in people's lives and different ways. It seems that um, death often gives us an appreciation of life um and perhaps because you experienced that at such a young age that's become more driven in your work yes definitely like some of my favorite poets were like people like Sylvia Plath the confessional poets um I like the honesty of their work and though it could be morbid to some people I feel like their work had such a vitality especially Sylvia Plath there was a definite life force in there um and like excitement about existence and even though there was like really high highs and low lows I feel like when you've experienced like a death early on in your childhood there's just that deeper like appreciation but also lust to live and like to experience all sides of yourself and every every manifestation of who you can be and who the people around you can be and 
it's made me a more loving person because whether it's in my friendships or acquaintanceships or, or like people that I'm intimately involved with I always want to see them grow and see like the different sides of their personality I never hold people hostage to who they were yesterday because I know we're all like dying and coming back to life while we are alive and this is like a process of like rebirths um so it's interesting to me to see how people grow and that's also explored in my life like even the things I keep of people when they're not around me like the recipes a friend showed me one day even though she's not she might have moved to a different country I still hold that in my heart or a funny memory I had with a friend or something they a gift they gave me and it's still like I'm a very sentimental person um and it that all comes across in my work because I can't handle injustice I can't handle people not being able to express their true selves and in whatever I do that's really what I'm trying to inspire people to be is be themselves because they're exceptional they're unique they're different and there's only one of them so they need to shine their light in this world and knowing that I'm gonna die and knowing that everyone I love is going to die and pretty much everyone on the planet in a hundred years ish probably won't be here it's kind of mad to me and it just makes me more inspired to be loving and creative and to be my authentic self Yes, you're certainly bringing a very generous and, and compassionate approach to your to your work, and and I'm wondering whilst we're still around this particular young age, if you like, uh, you know, of, of nine and your your first entry into uh, poetry and, and talking about process, how helpful or unhelpful? would school have been at that time, at a very formative time in your education? It's funny because I had, I was a really, I was such a rebel in school and high school, specifically high school, because at nine, I was so introspective that I didn't even, I wasn't really clocking what was going on in my school. But when I got to high school, it's like, I became so aware, um, aware of teachers' microaggressions or, for example, when I first came to high school, I was put into the lowest set. Within a week, I was put in the highest set. That, to me, was an example of racism. They assumed I couldn't write, but then I showed them pretty quickly that I could write very well and comprehend very well. But it was the assumption that I was in the lowest, I should be in the lowest set. And a they were in my class, most of the people who were in my class that were in the lower set were ethnic minorities. Um, and I found that very interesting at a young age. I didn't clock it was racism until maybe like year nine, but in year seven, I was like, hmm, that's a bit weird. Hmm. And I started to question things and research more. So for me, school was kind of a hindrance at the beginning, but then I was lucky enough to experience one English teacher um, he was really kind to me. She was wonderful. I remember one day, I just don't know why, we had a, we basically had a poetry lesson and we were reading about like Wilfred Owen, I think is his name. Do you know the the war poet? Yeah, it is Wilfred Owen. Yeah. And he's exceptional, his work. And we were reading yeah. a poem that showed, was basically the true um, portrayal of war away from all this bravado and like, be patriotic, love your country, die for England. Like, no, nah, no. Nah. He was just honest about, like, 
men being gassed and people not being able to fit on their mask in time and his friends dying near him and just the whole like the true like disgustingness nature of war like having to kill your fellow man and having to die for abstract ideas the abstract idea of a country and borders so after that I was so inspired I was like oh my gosh poetry this is amazing um and I already was writing but like I didn't have that like belief I could do it as a career it was always like in my head but I didn't truly believe it I was like me a black girl writing poetry it seems kind of like middle class white man type of thing if I'm being honest I was like this kind of feels like I need to be rich and not my gender and not black yeah but then um I had that amazing poetry class and I was so inspired that I was like I don't care how I look or, or how the world sees me I just need to make this so I wrote like maybe like 16 poems in the space of two weeks showed it to my English teacher and she told them they were exceptional and that if I kept practicing she could imagine me being a really big poet and I was like Do you know what this is the first time anyone's ever looked at me and said like spoken positivity onto my life spoken potential um spoken options and that was so excited for me it was like I have options like I can create things that didn't exist before and give myself new avenues of being and living and experiencing. Like, I don't just what I see doesn't have to be what I am forever. Where I come from doesn't have to be the end. Um, the sadness, the grief, the, the sickness, that doesn't have to be all I am. I can be so much more and so layered. And it did help my health and my mental health for a while. So I feel like school has been both beneficial and a detriment to me because there are still some there's still some voices in my head that aren't mine of like inadequacy and imposter syndrome and who really cares about what you have to say but then I realized that if people like Maya Angelou believed that that she didn't have anything to say then I wouldn't have been inspired or people like Plath who obviously she was writing in a time where women weren't women's literary merits weren't really appreciated um as much as they should have been and those are the people that inspire me and even though probably most of the people I'm inspired by have are layered and intricate and and they have interesting opinions in themselves but the art that they created that has saved me and and helped me feel grounded in a world that can make you feel really alienated and I feel like for me, the reason I'm so attached to art and why my youth really helped me in a way and the education system helped me in a way is it showed me that communication and that's really the important thing. Like I never, I can never bash education because there's women right now in Afghanistan that can't have education and that blows my mind. It actually makes me cry that like they're not going to be able for now to experience what they deserve, knowledge, um, options really to create the life they want so I can never bash education because there's so many beautiful parts of it that have benefited me and to even be in a country that offers free education up until uni is quite mad and, and amazing and I love that and it's one of my favorite things about Britain but at the same time like when you're a black person a minority there are a lot of messages that are sent to you about where you belong and what you can write and what is marketable and what's relevant and often you're not it apparently yeah but however it's an important point that you make when we think that that you know the, the current news on uh women in Afghanistan now being 
prevented from going to school, um, from going to university. They're pulling them out of the workplace. Uh, it, it's such it's such shocking oppression. It's such a shocking abuse of, of human rights. And um, what you're also recognising, though, however, is we are in a very privileged position in comparison. So you can have your frustrations with the education process, but we still have a privilege in that we are able to challenge that and we are entitled to challenge that without yes. fear. Exactly. Like I can talk about decolonizing literature. I can I have the I have the freedom to explore other means of communication and to even communicate these ideas with people. That's why creativity is so beautiful because you get to create, you can often communicate ideas in a non-pretentious way, hopefully, and it can make it more consumable for the masses to help empathy and and also as entertainment from the pain and the the oppression and the, the boredom and of life sometimes. But it's very important to me when I think of education and being someone who benefits from Western education to find ways to broaden that out to other civilizations, my sisters in other countries. And I feel like if you have this privilege like I do and you don't use it to help people, then you're also hurting yourself because Mary, is it, Ma no, it's Margaret Atwood with her handmaid's tale. On things people in Afghanistan women are experiencing, she kind of wrote it from if it happened to Western women. And I feel like in our society, and I love that book as well, I feel like we shouldn't always have to imagine us in that position for it to hurt us. We should just care. It shouldn't be about, okay, this could be me one day or women around the world, this could spread out. It should be anywhere where our sisters are struggling, we are struggling regardless. And that's what I need, that humanitarianism. Like if a black man dies, we all die. If a woman is being raped, we're all being raped. Like, because that is our sister, that is our brother. And I feel like that's the point of art. And what really inspired me in school is I was able to read about different people's experience and actually feel like I was in there. Like actually relate to the characters. Like when um, Lenny died in Mice and Men, that hurt me. <laughs> I'm not a... A white American man in the 1930s but I cried I was like no not Lenny like not Lenny and it's like that's the type of importance of art and literature and creativity because it can make you it can put yourself in someone else's shoes and realize that them and them just existing is important and they you see I feel like art is a mirror so with me and being a poet I just wanted to be a mirror for other people, show them like my scars, my flaws, my fears, the things I'm excited about, what keeps me waking up um, and kind of inspire them to continue. And because yeah. that's literally what art was for me. And that helps me during these times of like intense oppression where I'm seeing my sisters in other countries suffering not becoming jaded and not becoming cynical because there is a cynical side to me but the only reason I don't fall into that is because I have art art has saved me in many ways and helps me want to save other people or contribute to helping them 
Yeah, and you're you're responding to to humanity, and it's interesting because all of the poets and, and writers you've referred to so far are very brutally honest voices, and I know you equally have a lot of emphasis on on auth- authenticity, and you know, not kind of tucking things away in pretty metaphors, for example, and. I thought your title of your first book, Soft Tortures, was a really interesting choice because it's very clearly a nod to brutal honesty, if you like. And I just wondered, for for listeners who won't be necessarily aware of that book or those poems, if you'd just like to share what you mean by soft tortures and and some of the examples of, of the work in that book that was dealing with heartbreak and loss and identity and, and mental illness as well. Yeah, I feel like for me, the collection when I wrote it, it was about the dualities of love, that love can't exist without grief. Um, that desire can't exist without loss and without need and need sometimes comes from a deficiency so all these things that are written about in literature in very beautiful ways and sensual ways can also be incredibly painful and it's coming from a place of I have a long-term health condition sickle cell is just about pain like that's all the condition is it's just pain like it's not that is literally the condition like it's inflammation it's your it's your knee coming out of place it's your spleen doubling in size it's your your I found out recently in a book about sickle cell that your eyes can come out of your your eyeballs can come out of your eyes I was like girl lord please let that not be me Mm, I was like this mm. this is a lot um I've had instances of my leg not working for a week I was in excruciating pain and um but I look I look I look like a person without a condition. I look healthy. I am healthy often. I would say eight months out of the year, <laughs> nine months out of the year, I'm great. Um, I have a month here where I'm feeling a bit strange mentally and physically. It affects it. Um, but for me, like knowing that my existence, which comes with so much joy and pleasure and blessings and and actually affirmation, because I can tell you, like I literally have been writing in the industry for five years now properly and most black writers won't have had the experience I've had in the literary industry where I've been getting awards quite early I've been being recognized and I take none of it for granted because this is not the experience for a lot of black writers at the beginning and I'm I'm very ambitious because I I have the looming mortality over me and I just want to experience all sides of love and life but it all comes with this sense of ambivalence and with duality where with everything that I am there's the opposite I have a shadow I have an ego I have moments of deep despair and it's all wrapped up in love and it's all wrapped up in my background and my childhood and when I explored soft tortures for me it was the how love is so how we ache for love and how much we want it and from that comes from familial love and our history of love in our childhood and how we experience love but also how that follows us into adulthood and in our relationships friendships in our workplaces in how we attach to people attachment so it's really about that like that two that's that that the two sides of being a person like there's there's the comfort in love but it can also be torturous like the things that we use to the things we use as opium and we use as a type of drug to like 
help us can also be killing us. Um, I write about my first crushes in that book, like my first experience of love. I write about my father extensively. I write about my mum occasionally. I write about how I see myself and a lot of the book is about mental illness. It's a lot of the book is about having conflicting feelings, body dysmorphia. I had an eating disorder and it, I have flare-ups, but I'm pretty much recovered. And um, experiencing that, like, believing, okay, I deserve to exist. I had to convince myself that because for a long time, I didn't feel like I deserved to exist. So it was that that ambivalence of, am I allowed to take up space? But I am here, so I do exist. And it's like, Soft Tortures to me is is a is a title about basically existentialism and like how everything has an intense duality and it's confusing and what is meaning and it's the conflict between those words soft and tortures is the opposite and it's also um it's interesting because it's also my relationship with pain how pain and pleasure are really what's interlinked and because I've had a really like unusual experience with pain I can handle a lot of pain and there were periods in my life where my emotional health was so uh, it was so instate in like there was so much instability in my emotional health that like I needed to experience physical pain to distract me from the emotional pain and how the pain can be soft in a way because it can it can be a blanket it can be something that you use to help you and there's a lot of psychology in, in, in about that about like why humans can sometimes use pain as a coping mechanism endorphins are released even when you eat peppers like <laughs> so for me soft torches is basically about like the ambivalences within existence the the paradoxes like how love cannot exist without grief and pain basically yeah, and I, and I think it, it's it's really um, powerful work because also written from the perspective of you like a young adolescent that's that's in many ways going to be so helpful and relatable to many other uh, people, particularly uh, adolescents that may be struggling with uh, similar wrestles and issues. And I also saw that you wrote specifically actually um about what you called the pro-anorexia plague of 2013 and and it really is deeply shocking um the irresponsibility of uh social media that's hosting such alarming content because you highlighted there was literally instructions on how to starve how to effectively how to harm yourself um but you fortunately um did find um a way through that um I think you you may have had some professional help and you had supportive family to do that um but nevertheless you do talk about mental scars and I think all of this really resonates with that idea of of soft tortures and one of the things that stood out to me actually in that blog that you wrote was the image you chose you can see um a woman's torso but across it are the words be brave 
And I thought that was really interesting choice. Was that an assertion of being brave enough to be who you are and to not conform to artificial and, and media standards? Definitely, because it's crazy. Like even my first single that will be coming out like end of January um, <clears throat> or latest, the beginning of Feb, the, my chorus is be like you, you're exceptional must be out of my mind, must be out of my mind, must be out of my mind to be like you when I'm exceptional, be like you, you're exceptional. So I spend the chorus saying, I'm amazing, I shouldn't want to be like you. You're amazing, you should want to be like you. Do you get me? Um, because I've always realised society, there's so much simulacra, there's so much copies, there's so much imitation. The nature of reality is basically everything in our heads is just a projection of what we think reality is, even our own reflections. And it's very easy to lose your sense of self in a world that's telling you who you should be, how you should look. You need to be light skinned. You need to be skinny. You need big breasts. You need a big butt. It's like, I can't be all these things at once. <laughs> like, it's not <laughs> so it's literally not possible. So the alternative is you can spend your life chasing the idea of what should you, you should be without ever knowing who you are or you can accept who you are and find a way to be who you want to be like to self-actualize like that's basically our hope right self-actualization having a mirror image of who we think we are and seeing that and being like oh yes who I think I am is actually who I am like my internal world is reflected on my external world that is the hope um so that be brave is a commentary on that like it being yourself is scary because humans don't like rejection rejection sucks like there's been times where I would have rather died than experience rejection like because it feels like social death anyway it's like oh I'm not accepted I'm alienated I'm different but then when you're brave and people love you they're loving the true you and they're loving the authentic you. And that's so much more life affirming than if you were pretending or acting as a person. And obviously even Shakespeare says like the whole world's a stage. Like we're all performing different roles, of course. Like, okay, a nurse isn't a nurse when he's four, seven. She obviously has, like my mom's a nurse. You have caring aspects of you. But sometimes you want to be taken care of. Sometimes you need to feel like people care about you it's not always about being needed sometimes you just want to feel cared for like there's different roles you inhabit but finding that intrinsic part of you that shines that is your identity in a world that's trying to mold our identity for consumerism and for essentially advertisements money it's crazy like I didn't know that the reason in 2013 <clears throat> until I was older that obviously thigh gaps were in fashion and um, anorexia was basically in fashion is because of high fashion brands that were selling an aesthetic, the 90s heroin chic. Because these things come in and out of fashion. That's literally why my my um, EP is called Vintage Destiny because it's all about, I'm releasing a project that will be classic. And whenever people receive it and realize that that's not up to me, like a lot of people create art and it's not the first reception isn't what they wanted and then it later is enjoyed and regarded but life is a 
it's in flux and we constantly have moments of like thinking that a certain time is over and then because of nostalgia it comes back but people forget that in the the heroin chic era people were literally addicted to heroin like they weren't eating so that's why they were so skinny and obviously there was the glamorization of certain aspects of toxic aspects of rock obviously there's amazing aspects of rock it's it's so life-affirming it's exciting it's cerebral um and obviously serotonin from music but also there there were toxic aspects of like the rock and roll sex drugs and all that jazz that came back into fashion but only the the inebriated aesthetic not inebriated emaciated aesthetic and it was just divorced from the music divorced from the context divorced from the drugs why that happened like the negative sides and people just like no this is how you need to look this is what's sexually acceptable not even 20 years later it's bbls now and it's all about having a big butt having massive boobs being basically Marilyn monroe's body on on like steroids or something times a thousand that's the aesthetic now and it's wild because i'm hearing conversations about how even that is going out of fashion and it's got we're going back to heroin chic and when i heard that i was like this needs to stop because women's bodies can't come in and out of fashion we're people we're people like the tree is beautiful because it's a tree like and that's different to the flower that's different to the to the apple like we're not comparing we're not trying to get the tree to be in and out of fashion we see that in nature things exist in their uniqueness and it's beautiful and that's the same within humans we exist within our uniqueness and we're meant to be different and in our difference we create a community individuals create communities um and it doesn't have to be either or like you can contribute and still be different still be exceptional and there's like this trend going around where it's like oh like not everyone's unique and I feel like that's not true everyone is unique in a different way and I feel like we need to really have a regard over our uniqueness and not try to fit in like live in the world to stand out and live in the world to be your specific person because you only get one life you literally get one life so why would I want to kill myself? Why would I want to literally hurt my body for an aesthetic? For an aesthetic, for a look. And, and it's a contrived look. So that really damaged me as a teenager, going on Tumblr and seeing like instructions and like basically how to eat less than 500 calories a day. Like it was crazy. Like you can't live like that. And I was lucky that I had a support system because I have sickle cell. There's a lot of nurse, like I have a lot of nurse, um, specialist nurse, and they put me in the right hands to get a nutritionist. And I was on a very, <clears throat> I was on a very, um, a very special diet because I was, I, I did go on a phase where I was vegan. Well, it wasn't a phase. I was vegan for five years and I loved it. But then it got to the extent where I wasn't eating enough. And then I had to go on a, a nutritionist, showed me how to eat as a vegan the right way. And then I did it healthily the right way. But there's a lot of people that wouldn't do it the right way. They would just do it to not eat a lot of calories. And it's sad. Mm. Yeah, because also um, it's a form of oppression, isn't it? This dictatorship of how apparently women are supposed to look uh, or, or anybody affected by some sort of um 
trend or, or dictatorship about how their body is supposed to look becomes a form of oppression and one of the best things we can do for ourselves surely and especially women who uh, are, are the most or have been historically the most objectified is to simply drop that oppression, drop those magazines, trash the magazines, and as you're saying, be your authentic self and start to embrace the fact that we are inevitably all different and that that's something that can be enjoyed. It's impossible to conform to a standard that's artificial. And worse still, maybe quite often, the fantasy of a male somewhere it is because i have this poem and i'm so happy because it won a united nations sustainability award at the big sin international film festival mother messiah it's a collaboration i did with young identity and i'm so happy that they helped fund it and shirley may and and um nicole may were my producers on the projects I have a line in the poem, Thy Messiah has a vagina, voluptuous vanguard, Lady Godiva. With her crimson rose lipstick and hieroglyph eyeliner, she rides wise into wars like Athena. This is my ode to women, because we are more than what our bodies look like. We can make life, like that's magical. We are soft, we are we are strong, we are loving, we create civilizations, we sustain these civilizations as well. We're smart, we're creative. Like to me, I'm a very spiritual person. Women are also a manifestation of God. And there's so much beauty in women and that and is not just physical beauty, but in our essence and what we can do. And in that poem, I like explore multiple um historical figures and pop culture figures that I draw inspiration from on the days that I don't feel confident and the days that I don't feel special or interesting or important or worth anything and then I remember like my purpose and what I came here to do which is create and to communicate and to connect um and I feel so blessed that I have been able to be an intellectual so that I don't have to just rely on my body and I don't have to rely on what people think of my body. Um, and that there's beauty in being a sexual woman, in being an, an intellectual woman, in being an athletic woman. And these don't have to be divorced from the person. These can all be in one person. And there's so many women that are extremely complex and intricate. And we're not simple and we're not, we're not how society portrays us to be like. And I like how different women are reclaiming their feminism in different ways. And you can, some people are wearing pink as a backlash to like men not taking pink seriously, wearing pink suits. I love it. Other people are exploring how um, sex work can be a type of feminist um, exploration or why it's not. Like there's so many important layers to the feminist discussion and being a woman and it's not just what we can give to men or the male gaze it's not just watching movies and seeing the slow pan to the woman's breasts we're so intricate and interesting and we have so many stories to tell and some of my favorite writers are women a lot of my favorite writers are women and I don't think it's because I'm a woman I think there's something universal like 
that women explore um in their writing about love and about about family and I feel like family often is the best metaphor for humanity like like what happens in the domestic space is really a lens a smaller lens on what's happening in the universal space of humanity like how you treat your family how you treat the people close to you it's how you're going to treat humanity at large so I really enjoy women writers and what women have to say and I wish in the future because I'm seeing it music is getting a bit better I, I did get involved in like um a manifesto to the government with brighter sound about getting women in music and just trying to like diversify spaces that have we've been historically excluded from and I'm lucky that in the literary world I'm actually starting to carve out a space for myself and I could continue to I intend to continue to talk about these topics and I'm not going to shy away from the truth like I'm going to be I'm relentlessly feminist and I've been criticized for it multiple times for being very pro-black and pro-women and pro-LGBT and pro-disabled people and pro-refugees because humanity is so layered and it's like you don't know who you could have been I could have woken up and been anyone I ended up in this body but I could have been in anybody so why should I because of my privilege now oppress people and in my opinion by not saying anything you are also engaging in the oppression because when I see something wrong and I'm not saying hmm maybe we shouldn't be telling women to not eat which is a central function of existence so a man is pleased with them to me that's not like I'm not saying anything that's amazing or or that should be controversial but often people have been taught that the media and what is liked and what is preferable is who they should be and that's why a lot of women die like anorexia is one of the highest mental is the mental health issue that creates one of the most deaths so with anorexia there's a high fertility rate where people will just die because you're not feeding your body and when I knew that I had to shake myself out of it because I was like girl you already have sickle cell like you cannot contribute more things to your your mortality like I, I, I feel like I just want people to be healthy and happy and and that comes from having a sense of freedom and having a sense that they can have control over their lives and they're not slaves to they're not slaves to products they're not slaves to manufacturers they're not slaves to capitalism essentially what capitalism wants from them like I want people to feel more comfortable exploring wacky jobs like I'm a full-time artist now I make films and I, I write poetry and I make music and I'm so happy and I feel so alive and it's like I want women to know that they have options and they don't have to be these cookie cutter people I want people in general to know that they have options and I feel like that's what art does like it shows us there are possibilities outside of the world we live in that we can imagine new ones and we can create interesting things that show us different ways of being and it's like the most amazing thing to me about art is its ability to reimagine what's possible like and there's so many people that I secretly think are artists, but they've never been able to explore that side of themselves because we're just forced into this capitalist conformist box. Yeah. So would you say that courage 
really is about being brave enough to be authentic in order to shake off all of those other shackles. I mean, how would you explain your courage uh, in order to be brave enough to be as authentic as you are? Where where does it come from or or how has that been influenced? Um, I watched this this guy on YouTube um, and it's his name, I think it's Deep Waters. I'm probably butchering his name, but he's a great YouTuber. And he says, speak even if your voice shakes. And I, I remember when I heard that quote, I was like, that is so poignant. Because being brave isn't about having no fear. It's about being scared and doing it anyway. And I feel like in life, a lot of the things we're successful in is because we were scared and we did it anyway like we took a risk and I think the only risk is not taking one the only risk is not taking the chance on yourself and believing in yourself I don't believe in what ifs I also don't believe in regrets if something flopped I just catch the L and keep it going like I'm just like it's on to the next because I have this I have this deep belief and I've had it since I was young that I'm going to be successful and I'm going to help people and to me being successful it's helping people, giving people the courage to use their voice because they have a voice and their voice is important and it needs to be involved in discussion. Be your voice, not an echo. Be your own person. And in my art, that's all I'm trying to do. Inspire people to use their own voices, inspire people to be more empathetic because I have so much empathy. I'm a highly sensitive person and that makes me brave because I don't have the luxury to. I don't have the luxury to ignore my shadow or my ego or my fears or the or the love I have inside me. I constantly interrogate why I'm doing the things I'm doing, if art is what I need to be doing, if I'm benefiting the space, if I'm making it easier for people. I actively try to help other artists in what they need because I remember the times when I was helped and when I needed guidance and it's I always believe in giving it back and that energy comes back to you and it's that bravery of being like, okay, I don't know what I'm doing right now. I don't know how it's going to exactly look like, but I have faith and the vision to believe that however it manifests, it will be beautiful. And even if I get knocked down, even if there are a few failures, even if I'm occasionally embarrassed, the destination I'm going towards is so beautiful and the journey I'm having is so exciting that why should I, why should I be more concerned with the fair and not more excited about the excitement? Because fair and excitement are pretty much a similar feeling. They're pretty much the same feeling, but we just recognize it in a different way. So every time I'm scared, I just feel it. I just assume it's butterflies. I'm just like, okay, I'm feeling it like excitement. I'm a little bit scared right now but let me just move past the fair. And it's so exciting when you move past the fair because you're like, wow, I have this potential in me. What else can I be? And that's why, and this is something really important I want listeners to know, never ever doubt anyone. Most people don't know their potential. You don't even know your potential, so you can't doubt anyone. And that starts with not doubting yourself. I don't know my full potential and I'm constantly surprising myself with the things I can do. I remember the first time I sang on stage was to like 500 people practiced for like an hour before then I was on the stage with Della Sissimi 
the keyboardist for Fella Cutie when he was alive, an amazing musician in his own right. And I was like, wait, how am I, how am I on the stage with one of the cre- like main founders of Afrobeat? <laughs> I'm singing, doing poetry on MIF stage. I wouldn't have even imagined this a year ago. And that all started with me doing a, a small course in line from Brighter Sound. It's taking the small steps to believe in yourself, not even knowing where those steps are going to lead to you, but knowing that the universe and your own guidance system, your own intuition is going to take you where you need to go. So it's having the fear, doing it anyway, because you're excited about the potential you have, because you don't know how far you can go. No one really knows what they're capable of until they do it. So you just have to do it, even if it's uncomfortable. And kind of the being uncomfortable is kind of the exciting part. Yeah, and it's trusting yourself to do that. Um, So part of your courage uh, and getting past fear is because you are trusting yourself to do that. And it's interesting because I read um, in an article where you also acknowledged that there can be added pressures where you said black people can't fail because we can't have second chances. And I wondered if you were referring to who controls those chances. Yeah, because, for example, like, there's a lot of artists who... How can I say this? This is the truth. A lot of black artists are the blueprint when it comes to music, when it comes to literature. There'll be a lot of looking across the pond, seeing what certain people are doing, copying it, repackaging it, and then it's accepted to the larger population and it's enjoyed and it's regarded. And then those people who have created those types of art forms aren't ever truly appreciated or they're given one chance and then maybe there's a controversy with them or maybe their art doesn't sell as many records because of their ethnicity, because people don't maybe aesthetically what's the word, relate to the person so then they don't want to play their music and those are this, or they don't want to read their poetry or they don't want to be tainted by black literature. There's all these like historical reasons for why black artists find themselves in the really weird oppressed state where that we affect the tastes of the culture and the culture, but we don't really have any control over the means of the culture, the means of production or um, investment in black art. Luckily, we have organizations like young identity that have finally been funded the way they should have been funded in the past i believe um and they are now a larger organization with their npo status but often black organizations don't have that like government backing um thus they aren't able to help younger black artists and then you find yourself in this really weird space of people say that you have really interesting things to say but because of the way you look we can't really market you we can't really package you so we like all this but you can be in the background and you can we'll invest in someone else and they can do exactly what you're doing but it's just not you and that kind of erodes your self-esteem and then it makes it gives you that like idea and it's the cliche that a lot of black kids were told by their parents well if you want to be successful you have to work three times harder than the white kids and that is such it's such a debilitating um statement but it's true and it's like you can put so much work in and still not get to the same space because of social and cultural capital um there's this debate going on right now about nepotism and 
I feel like you have to be insane to not think nepotism is beneficial. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, like celebrities talking about how, oh, like me being Johnny Depp's daughter doesn't, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't benefit me at all. And it's like, what? Like me even being in a Western country benefits me. Like I'm not delusional. Like every, me have me being able to walk on two legs benefits me because this world is not, um, friendly to people who aren't able-bodied there's so many ways in which it's not for non-able-bodied people like the world doesn't think about people who are not like able-bodied so for me to not even understand like the nuances I would have to be really detached from reality so when I see in society people being so detached it it freaks me out because I'm like no like we need to read a book you need to know the place you are in society, how you were born, how the world perceives you, how that affects you, how proximity to blackness can change your experience in the literary space, how even when I get on stage, if I read a poem from my head, like I memorise it rather, which is the oral tradition, which should be respected, respected rather than read it off a book, now I'm a spoken word poet and not a poet poet. Like, there's like these categories that often black people are like pushed into because of their proximity to blackness and because of their proximity to hip-hop or what people think is hip-hop that when you enter literary space you're not taken seriously and then you kind of have to convince people to take you seriously not that oh I'm in this room thus I must be relevant like I must deserve to be in the space it's I have to prove once even in the space why I deserve to be in that space and if I make a mistake often even if I like say one like I I say one word wrong like I choke on my word for a second I could go home that day and just cry my eyes out for like a week I kid you not because I have such a high expectation of my art and what I need to give and not being allowed to feel one of my favorite artists um when I was younger was Michael Jackson and I remember finding out and it was interesting because even Bowie talks about this Finding out that before Michael Jackson's thriller, black artists weren't even allowed on MTV. You weren't even allowed to your music on MTV. So how am I meant to progress? If I was born back then and I, like, how would I progress? I basically have to be the most excellent of the most excellent for you now to put me on your show and make space for people that just want to create art and eventually become great or just good. Like, I don't feel like to be an artist, you always have to be the best, like, that's the sad thing. Like, I feel like a lot of people stop themselves from making art because they think they have to be excellent all the time and every single thing they release has to be a masterpiece and they, ha- they have to be Botticelli and it's just like, no. Mm. Like, yeah, there's there's such an imposition of having to defeat so much, uh, like literally apartheid and racial discrimination. There's that history, isn't there, um, of needing to defeat so much in order, as you say, to even just be in the space. And so it's all very well, isn't it, when people talk about vulnerability um, as the path to building resilience, which is hugely relevant. But at the same time, there's such a fine line between building resilience and becoming completely exhausted. Yeah, I get exhausted often, like, Sometimes the questions people be asking me about my poems make me roll my eyes, but because I'm respectful and I understand not everyone comes from the same background as me, I I indulge the questions. For example, I had during my um, premiere of Mother Messiah, 
at home theater in Manchester. Um, there was a day that it was screened, one day screening. Um, a lot of people came. I was excited to premiere my first film in an actual theater. And um, this gentleman, this white gentleman, after watching it, he was like, oh, you look so lovely. You look so pretty. But isn't this a distraction? Isn't this you objectifying yourself with the male gaze? Because I was in a, I was in a, like a Renaissance type dress sat on a table, metaphor for women need to be at the table, eating apples, allusions to obviously, um, allusions to the Bible, allusions to women in the Bible, like Eve, allusions to eating the apple, wisdom, and of knowledge and evil, of good and evil, and then also like the Disney tales and fairy tales. There was a lot of, there was a lot of influence with that, but also in the female tradition, of being binded into corsets. There was a lot of metaphors and symbolism. And the fact that all he got was that I looked pretty and it was distracting annoyed me. But I had to just tell him, like, no, like, this is, I'm on a table because I'm talking about the, the commodification and objectification of women, how we're seen as food, as something to consume, that the metaphors around us is all about our desirability and. Of course, I may look desirable in the video to you, but that wasn't the intention. It was a commentary on desirability politics and being seen for your body more than the magic of what your body can do and who you are. And I explained that to him in a less agitated tone than I am with you, but it was... Mm-mm. And how did that go down? Was that a revelation? It was it was a revelation for me because as soon as I said it, I felt guilty. I felt guilty for defending women and for defending myself. And it was obviously me realising the patriarchy I have internalised, um, sexism within myself of having to cuddle men. And I'm just trying to get to the point where I ha- I don't want to have to cuddle men. Like, I want to be able to love men authentically and be able to help them through their struggles because feminism also benefits them. Men should not have super high suicide rates, should not be feeling like they're, um, they're not worth anything if they can't work, should not feel basically... Um, destroyed by capitalism but at the same time my brothers need to stop hurting me (laughs) and I feel like it's okay to say that like yes you're oppressed in a different way to me but you are also the reason I am being oppressed and your blissful ignorance is killing me I have experienced being stalked to my um kitchen when I was in university to my flat kitchen a man literally tried to stalk me um well he followed me in and then luckily my friend was there my male black friend and scared him off but if my friend wasn't there I don't know what would have happened to me and instances and I told the police about that they didn't care the the cumulative effect of patriarchy what it means in real life is so much more important than a flippant comment so I have to explain it in a loving way because this is the truth people have egos and I'm not there to destroy your ego I'm trying to touch your soul and move past the ego and to do that I have to be soft with you but also I have to be real and honest and occasionally slightly brutal um so I did feel a bit of guilt my mentor assured me surely that I said the right thing and there was nothing wrong with what I said the guy looked very embarrassed and I haven't seen him since then I used to see him occasionally around home theatre on the space, but I haven't seen him since then. I don't know if that was because he felt some type of way. And I felt guilty. I felt guilty for standing up for myself a bit. 
then I had to move past that because I'm like, this Mother Messiah was about divine feminine and why our narratives are removed from religious and spiritual discussions in favour of male sexualization. And then in the same breath, you're going to sexualize me. Like, did you not watch the film? Like, it was just like... Yeah, and you. Yeah, and uh, it's very, it's very interesting to hear that that somehow made you feel guilty when um, you were simply explaining what your work is, what that piece of work was about. And it, it it's interesting because I have in mind your poem "Oral to A 4 and in that you refer to Tupac and. Interestingly, um, uh, following his um, unsolved murder, um, an exhibition in Los Angeles um, uh, ran and it was really putting an emphasis on him as a political activist driven for the meaningful liberation of black American people. So in other words, it really wasn't just trying to um, focus solely on gangster rap and, um, you know, unsolved murder mysteries. Um, And one of the things that exhibition highlighted was when he, as an artist, was asked why he was unconcerned about whether violence and rage in his music would make white audiences uncomfortable. (laughs) And his reply was, what about when I felt uncomfortable for 400 years? And, um, you know, that's inevitably, surely, um, the, the only response. And it's interesting because... Would he have felt guilty about asserting that? But it's but it's um, interesting how guilt has surrounded some of what you were just saying, even though you're only asserting the truth, the uncomfortable mm. truth. I feel like women's, this is the truth, men's guilt becomes women's shame. The things men should be guilty about, we feel ashamed for, or we internalise their guilt because we have become society's mothers. Even if I decide in my life to never have kids, I'll, I'll always be mothering some man. It's unfortunate. But, <laughs> but this is the way society is set up. And I feel like we can move past it. And it's interesting because this all this is the intersections of how... Tupac was oppressed as a black man, but he still had privilege over black women. It's like what Malcolm X says, the most disrespected woman in America is the black woman. And I would argue in the world, because if it's not human trafficking or our organs being taken out of our bodies or slavery, which there's still modern slavery, people forget, or the ramifications of colonialism, why our countries are so poor, even though they're very rich in resources and how colonialism never ended. It's not just about the 400 years. It's about what's still happening. And it's about how our communities are still being destroyed by colonialism and by being over-policed and under-protected. 
I had that incident with the police and I thought, oh, they were here to help me. No, that was a rude awakening. Um, that They're not here to help me. They're not here to help, for me, in my opinion, people, but instead property, because property will be protected in a capitalist society. If someone stole my car, I would probably get justice for that. If someone stole my body, rape, statistically, I probably won't. So that's interesting to me. And I feel like with Tupac, he is a very interesting figure because there's a lot of toxic things in his past. He said things about sickle so I don't appreciate in his lyrics. He said things about women I haven't always appreciated. And he's also had extremely feminist lyrics as well. And I feel like, and it links to what I was saying about black people not being really allowed to feel. I feel like black artists need to be allowed to, to have layers, to not be perfect, to not be toxic. Because everything you put in the world, you need to try to make it helpful. Even even if you're not going to hurt this world, you have to at least not hurt it, in my opinion. Um, and that's that that links to kind of what Anne Sexton says. Um, like, it's important just to not kill anything. Like, just don't just don't kill anything. If you can if you can come into this world and not destroy it, great. Ideally, benefit it. But with Tupac, he's he he's a layered figure because there's things about him I really love, and there's things about him I don't really like that much, and that are morally a bit questionable but then I think about all the layers of morally questionable white figures white literary figures white artists like Caravaggio was very uh, morally questionable you could say but he was extremely talented and we still appreciate his art even knowing the conflicts and the layered nature of it and I feel like he's brilliant and it's the same with Tupac Tupac was to me an activist but he was an activist that was laid and could be problematic in himself and that's why I mention him because to me Shakespeare is also an artist who is laid and complex and a bit toxic in himself too because there's so many there's so many parts of Shakespeare's work that I enjoy and I love but Othello even though it's a commentary on race can arguably be a bit mm, there's parts of it that's stereotypical. There's many characters that are Jewish in Shakespeare's tales where you can arguably say, mm, this is a bit anti-Semitic, but mm, it was written in a certain time, da, 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 context, blah, blah, blah. I want to explore and live in a world, and this is where the Afrofuturism comes in, reimagining what's possible with technology and nature and reality and what black people have contributed and what we can contribute, how we can reshape the world. And within that, we need to accept human fallibility. Humans fail, humans are questionable, humans are not completely moral. We have layers and it should be us trying to walk towards the morality, walk towards the love in nature. If we're still trying to be better, that is where, uh, to me, our self-actualization comes in. To me, I think Tupac self-actualized because at the end of his life, he was trying to be better. He was trying to be more loving his Artwork has always been very poetic. The Rose That Grew in the Concrete, that is a poem. Just the title is a poem. The Rose That Grew in the con Concrete, do you know what that's saying? It's saying that you can put me in a negative environment and I'll still flourish. That is black people. When we were enslaved, we flourished. When we went enslaved, we flourished. During Jim Crow, we flourished. When we came here on um, during Windrush, we flourished. Even when we're dealing with oppression, we're flourishing. So what would happen if we weren't being oppressed? Black Wall Street existed, one of the richest neighbourhoods in America, a black neighbourhood, and that was destroyed. That was destroyed because of racism. 
burnt the whole city down. What could art look like if people weren't... If instead of being jealous of people or trying to steal work, if people were inspired by each other, if people tried to help black artists, if people tried to uplift black voices, it makes me... I get excited because I think of all the possibility. And to me, Tupac was possibility. Just like Shakespeare, amazing work, moments of being problematic, but the art stands for itself. It's important. It has something to say. And he had a message. A lot of artists had a lot of beautiful messages in the 90s. Rap is poetry. It's poetry to be. It's poetry to music. Um, and I feel like he's not appreciated in the literary space the way he should be. He has some... I know that... Because I've watched videos about it. Akala's done videos about it. Where they've put Shakespeare lyrics, like Shakespeare poems, next to, um, next to Tupac poems. And people couldn't tell the difference. People like, yeah... Shakespeare could have brought that. And it was Tupac. So that shows that it's not about the writing. It's about who they perceive is writing it. It's about the messenger. Oh, the messenger doesn't aesthetically look like what I want. Oh, he looks a bit hood to me. He looks a bit ghetto to me. Oh, I don't know. I don't want my kids looking up to that. Mm. But and this not on the message. Mm. And this is all testimony, isn't it, to your poem, Um uh, oral to A4, in that you're challenging um, so much of that elitism, um, whether it's um, elitism in the arts or elitism even between what is poetry and is spoken word and art. So um, when you talk about rap, for example, and rap as poetry, and, and in my previous season, I, I interviewed um, the UK's first hip-hop poet, Otis Mensah, the first hip-hop um, poet laureate, I should say, in the UK. And it's very much about reaffirming um, the, the status of, of the spoken word as, as a legitimate art. And when you were talking about flourishing, surely spoken word flourishes because it isn't hijacked by the elitism of a publishing world. Mm. You're, not, you're not constantly edited down. Um, for me, the commissions I've loved, and I feel like that's how, like, when, when like, these amazing renaissance artists are commissioned i know they weren't given they, they weren't edited down it wasn't oh this sculpture is great but you need to remove this bit of the sculpture like that was was it happening but with poets and commissions there's this i like you, you might get commissioned for something people they'll say i love your style i love the way you 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 write you'll write the piece and it'll be like oh my gosh i love that but can you edit that bit and take out that bit and oh that that's a bit mm, political like remove that and it's like okay, if this was a painting, you wouldn't tell me to edit it like this. <laughs> so I feel like with the literary world, there is something about palatability, it being, it being, because there's been so, you need to remember banned books. There's been so many books that have been banned because contextually people were uncomfortable with it or they believed it needed to be edited down or it was going to destroy the youth's mind or it was too sexual or why is it so feminist or why are there black main characters there's so many banned books because of that so then that shows you like the literary urge to edit to and not edit in a great way but really to erase when I say edit I'm really meaning erase because edit is actually a good word like you want to tweak things you want to refine it but no it wasn't editing in that way it was more of erasure 
and knowing the history of literature and the history of erasure and like banned books spoken word is inherently a protest against that because you can't edit yourself there's something beautiful within live performance within the spontaneity it's almost jazz like within how it is improvised in a way that when you perform it you don't really know how it's going to come out like, with the, the energy of the day it could be different then and the words are memorized in the oral traditions of that were in yoruba traditions that were in greek traditions there's something beautiful about that it's like a call back to the ancestors whilst in the present um and the power of the voice that you and you doesn't always require a page like just because it's in a page doesn't mean it's any more reputable or important or poetic or beneficial to the human experience or the human zeitgeist of the of the period it's it's written in or created in i feel like spoken word is so inherently political because it focuses on the voice and it focuses on the present moment and the context of the time it can't be edited down luckily we live in a period where we can now document and archive things properly so we have videos so like when someone has a live performance it just doesn't have to be that it doesn't have to end like that um I have a piece that I wrote even about like Amy Winehouse about how like she's dead now she's passed away I should say um but we still have videos of her voice we still have she still couldn't have run away for us um so that's the beauty of spoken word like people think that like oh because it's not written in a book it can't be there forever it won't be archived it's not as special like it, it didn't have an editor involved like it doesn't have a publishing house behind it so it's not literary it's not important it's not interesting it's not valuable but I think it's just a different expression of creativity and a different expression of poetry there's it doesn't it's not better or worse it and I arguably it's hard to memorize it's hard to to perform the poem make it alive make it off the page like so I feel like spoken word poets need to be given a lot more credit they need to be appreciated in the same vein as page poets because page poets are amazing but spoken word poets are just as amazing and it's because of the proximity to blackness and hip-hop in my opinion why it's not appreciated in the same vein as page poetry even though it is as integral Mm, mm, uh, and highly skilled and it's interesting if if we pick up on actually your 2023 ep at this point um uh because uh vintage destiny the title of the ep um you describe as surrealist and afrofuturistic and again for the benefit of listeners because i'm always hoping that listeners are sometimes simply listening just to discover new things not because of a pre-existing interest that they're exercising healthy curiosity so how would you explain afrofuturistic because um while spoken word poetry, as you were saying, it, it, you know, it is very live and now, um, that is also moving towards an aesthetic that also um, embraces science fiction, if you like, or maybe a projection into the future. So I wondered if you could give us some context around that. Well, I feel like for me, Afrofuturism is kind of a cultural aesthetic. It's like the intersection between African... Uh, and African diaspora's interest with technology and the possibilities of where the Afro-African diaspora can go with technology and techno-culture. So to me, in terms of this EP, it's kind of me exploring 
as a black person, as someone with African and of Afro-Caribbean descent, my experience of the world and what I can imagine for the world and the possibilities for myself and others. Um, But whilst like, it's very hopeful and it's, it's focused on the future and not just like what we see now, but the possibilities of what we can have and what we can experience um, and what what we could have been if we weren't oppressed and kind of like looking towards a future without oppression or how we can like rework society to be more egalitarian and more loving towards the African diaspora, which in my opinion when racism in I hope one day is destroyed and we realize that we're all the same race we're just different shades of the same race um then other race other ethnic groups will be less discriminated against because there's kind of a hierarchy of um like there's a hierarchy of how how much we want to oppress you and it's kind of like within your proximity to blackness like if you're an african like you're the bottom barrel we've heard people like donald trump saying what he said about africa the terrible statements he said about africa and it's kind of like the closer you are to that you're not human and that has been in colonial text from for years now for centuries now um so if we can imagine a beautiful future for the african diaspora then we can imagine inevitably a beautiful future for everyone um so that's kind of the hope with Afrofuturism. How can we, how can we re-envision black futures, um, and the, the diasporic experience with magical realism and fantasy and technology and our contribution to technology? So it is really an aesthetic, but it's an aesthetic that we're kind of trying to create into the real world, project into the real world, so it can become a real experience. So the aesthetic to become real. Um, so with Vintage Destiny, I'm exploring the destiny, the future, but also the past and how I got here. So that's the vintage aspect, but also saying that this project is going to be a seminal piece of work in my um, in my history of work because it's really exploring what I've always wanted to explore outside of the trauma, outside of just the pain. I have a song where I'm exploring the relationship between black women and men and um, and the relationship between within that between inebriance and television and music and how cultural representations enter the um, domestic space and the interpersonal space, like how our context can affect our interpersonal dynamics, the politics of relationships. I have a song about that. I have a song um, called Blank Page Now, but may be renamed. Um, where I'm exploring the narratives people have thrown on me and being a black woman and my inspirations. And um, like the first few lyrics are, carry sonnets in my pockets from the stars I pull lyrics, get lost in the image of an image. I have no limits, count in the minutes. Every day it rises, the cost of living. The sky is a poem. Music is ibuprofen. Being sad is no fun. It's not the end. It's a semicolon, a little oxytocin. So that's me exploring like being a writer, being a poet, having a poetic background, being inspired by images and ideas, realizing I'm not limited to what the world tells me I am, being in a context of a cost of living crisis, but finding beauty in the sky, which to me is a poem 
and music is ibuprofen pain relief and, and being sad is no fun why would I want to do that it's a semicolon there's so much coming after it so even within my lyrics I try to be intensely poet po- political and, and poetic but in nuanced ways to not like scare off the audience um so it's me imagining like my future like I'm naked as a blank page but the world writes on me um you come into this world you're basically a blank canvas anything is possible and the world tells you who you are and I'm trying to find out who I was before the world told me who I am who I was and I want to like I know that I will reach self-actualization when I meet my inner child and I make her happy um so that is literally my goal like to create a world where my inner child will be happy and and the children that exist will be safe um and to me that's what afrofuturism is it's speculative it's hopeful it's it's looking to the future but also using the past as a reference of where we were and where we are but not where we have to go and where we have to always be yeah no and it, and it seems such a a beautiful response actually to the to the series question cannot save us um the, the way you're talking about you know imagining a beautiful future and how to actualize that certainly seems to be um an important way that art really can potentially save us or save our minds at least in terms of possibilities and you're also very clear about um people discovering their own sense of value you um relating again to our our discussion around authenticity and I wondered um particularly as I know we've crept over time but there's always too much to talk about I wondered whether from that point of view is 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 there anything that you would like to leave the listeners with whether it's um pointing to a poem or quoting from a poem that that maybe helps assert everything you were just saying about imagining a beautiful future or um even understanding your own sense of value um is there something you would like not just to leave listeners with but to help kick off their 2023 bearing in mind that this season will be published in january 2023 Mm. i think what I want to leave listeners with is if you're an artist I want you to really dig deep and explore what you're interested in don't explore the things that are topical or what is trendy actually explore what you're interested in because I promise you there's people that are interested in it too I personally feel like we should all relieve ourselves from the straight jacket which is genre I feel like a lot of black artists are like pigeonholed into genres and it's always the same ones. And I purposely explore in Vincent's Destiny a multitude of genres and that's a part of the Afrofuturism and a part of me not letting the world categorise me or tell me who I am, remaking the categories and basically re-establishing who I am and being firm in my identity. I feel like if you want to be a writer, if you want to be creative or if you want to give anything back to this world, you just have to be completely authentic and not listen to the crowd because there is no genius in the crowd. Um, and that's shout out to Bukowski. So um, I would say, and Bukowski was a very layered man himself, but I would say, don't listen to the genius of the crowd. Listen to what your heart tells you. 
follow your own interest. Never, ever, 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 ever. If you can help it, be jealous, be inspired. And whatever you make, whatever you create, it will be beneficial. It will help someone if you keep those rules. And they've worked for me. I make sure I stay inspired. I never follow the crowd. I literally never follow the crowd. It's been a problem of mine. Um, and I listen to my inner child, my interests, what I, what I, what I desire um, and move towards that. So if you do that in 2023, you'll have a lot more peace and feel a lot less stressed and ambivalent and you won't fight with yourself. I feel like if we spent more time loving ourselves and loving the people around us instead of fighting ourselves and trying to be a fake image of what people think we should be, then the world would be a lot better. And and I really feel like we could reimagine the world as a safer, more hopeful place. So yeah, definitely don't follow the crowd. Well, that's beautiful um, advice and authentic advice as well. I know that reflects your own lived experience. So a huge thank you to to you, Princess Aranola. Um, I will be signposting, I'll be signposting your work on your episode page, but thank you so much for your time. Um, it, it really is impressive, the work you've already accomplished um, at such a young age. And um Likewise, I, I truly hope that you will continue to, to share your, your very, very honest voice and hope that you continue to take those courageous steps in order to share it. So thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. Blessings. Thank you so much, Paul.